Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we are often asked to reflect on how we can change our lives to become more like Jesus. Towards this end, over the next six weeks, we are going to focus on what is known as the fruit of the Spirit. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today is from Psalm 120. In my distress, I cry to the Lord that he may answer me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, that I am an alien in Meshech, that I must live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40 and 45 to 48. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when Jesus had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the season of Lent, we've been doing a sermon series called The Fruit of the Spirit. The idea behind this series is that the more in touch you are with God's Spirit inside of you, the more you come to embody certain qualities. And these qualities are outlined for us by Paul in his letter to the church in Galatia. They are self-control, patience, kindness, joy, generosity, gentleness, peace, faithfulness, and love. Each week, we're diving deep into one of these spiritual disciplines, these fruits of the Spirit, and we're hopefully going to be living them out for the whole week so that it'll lay the foundation for what we're talking about the following week. 
Last week, we talked about the spiritual discipline of gentleness, and I told you that this is one of the most important of all of the fruits of the Spirit, because it, what, it's what allows for reconciliation in our world. So when you have a gentle spirit, it allows you to show grace to other people. And when you show grace, it allows you to forgive the wrongs that have been inflicted upon you. So in this way, gentleness is really a means by which we are able to bring healing to the world. People who have a lot of gentleness in their hearts and in their souls, they tend to be people who are willing to forgive more readily. They tend to be people who are willing to release their burdens, and they make room for restoration. And this restoration is what lays the foundation for what we're talking about today with peace. Now, peace may seem like an odd thing to be talking about on Palm Sunday where arguably Jesus is the angriest we ever see him in the entire gospel. Jesus walks into the temple and he starts flipping tables over. He's yelling at other people. But this day, Palm Sunday, really is a day about peace. And in order to understand why it's a day of peace, you have to appreciate what the palms symbolize. So I would pose the question to you. Why did Jesus' disciples take down palms and place them in front of him as he was marching into Jerusalem? And I think you all already know the answer to this question, which is that Jesus was anticipating how cute it would be for little kids to carry those palms down the aisle, which, of course, we don't get to experience this year. But the real reason behind the palms is actually very interesting. It's a really interesting story, and I'm going to truncate that story for our purposes here today. So in 167 BC, there was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, who marched his army into Jerusalem and essentially destroyed it. He killed some 40,000 people, and he sold another 40,000 into slavery. He then outlawed the Jewish faith, and he moved a statue of Zeus into the Jerusalem temple. He then proceeded to sacrifice pigs on the altar of the temple, which if you know anything about Jewish law, you know that the kosher laws prevent Jewish people from eating pigs. So in this way, he had desecrated the temple. Now, after the Jewish people got over the initial shock of this defeat, they started to gather themselves. They got together, they started to plan and plot, and they wanted to launch a guerrilla attack against Antiochus' forces. Led by a family known as the Maccabees, in 164 BC, three years after the initial attack, they were able to take back Jerusalem. And as the family of the Maccabees marched into Jerusalem, people around him took the palms and laid them down in front of them as they were coming in on their horses. Now, this is the origin of this ritual. So really what this ritual is all about is it's about celebration. It's celebrating the end of war and the beginning of peace. And as the Maccabees made their way into Jerusalem and they moved towards the temple, what they ended up doing is they went into the temple and they rededicated it to God in an eight-day celebration that today we know as Hanukkah. Now Jesus, as he's marching into Jerusalem, he makes his way to the temple as well. And he is there to rededicate the temple of God to the people also. Now, this may seem kind of odd because right now, at the time that Jesus is marching in, the Jewish people, they are in control of Jerusalem. 
The problem is that the people at this point in time, if you really wanted to worship God, you had to go to the Jerusalem temple. And you've heard me talk about this many times before, where you would have to purchase a sacrifice for the priest to sacrifice on your behalf. The cost of these animals could be quite expensive. And this is because the people who ran the temple, it was an aristocracy, and they had an iron-tight grip over it. So as a result, it meant that if you were poor, you couldn't really worship God in the way that you wanted to. It was very hard to afford the sacrifices. So when Jesus marches into Jerusalem and he's turning over the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices, what you have to appreciate is that he's doing this because he's trying to say and make a statement that the worship of God should be for all people, not just for those who can afford the sacrifices. So in this way, the people in Jerusalem, what they are hoping as they're laying these palms in front of Jesus is that he's going to bring peace. But in order for him to bring peace, he first has to get rid of the chaos. And there were a lot of people who were in chaos at this point in time. The Jewish people, particularly those who were poor, they were being oppressed, they were being ignored by their government, so it was like this big pool of gasoline that was just waiting to explode. All it needed was a spark. And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to remove that chaos so that there can be peace. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how if we truly want peace in our lives, we have to extinguish the chaos first. And in order to discuss this, I want to tell you a story about a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, you all probably know about Louis Zamperini if you've read the book Unbroken or if you have seen the movie by the same name. Now, Louis Zamperini, I think, is one of the best examples of what it takes to remove the chaos from your life so that you can find peace. So, Louis Zamperini, he was born on January 26, 1917, and he was raised in Torrance, California. He is what we would refer to today as a problem child. He was smoking by the age of five, and he was drinking alcohol by the age of eight. He also tended to be a bit of a kleptomaniac. He would steal anything that wasn't nailed down. He'd steal from neighbors and local businesses, and they all knew it was him doing it, but oftentimes he was so fast, he would get away from them so they couldn't ever pin it on him. By the time he was a teenager, he was actually running his own adolescent crime syndicate where he ended up getting arrested by the police and he got in a lot of trouble for it. So his older brother, Pete, he tried to curb some of these negative behaviors by coming to Louie when he was a freshman in high school and saying, look, I want you to come and try out for the track team. I think you'd be a good runner. So Louie tries out, he gets on, and by the end of his freshman year, he had placed fifth in the 600-meter dash at the All-City Divisional C title. Now, this was pretty good for his first time running, and his brother sat him down. He said, look, you could be an amazing runner. You have so much potential, but you have to quit drinking, and you have to quit smoking. And seemingly overnight, by sheer will, Louis was able to change his behaviors, and he became a running machine. From his sophomore year, all the way until he graduated, he was undefeated. He never lost a race. And in fact, when he graduated his senior year of high school, he held the interscholastic record for the one mile. It was four minutes, 21.2 seconds. That means he was the fastest high school runner in the entire country at that point in time, and it earned him a scholarship 
to the University of Southern California. In 1936, Louis decided he wanted to try out for the Olympics. Now, he knew he wasn't fast enough to qualify for the miles, so he decided he was going to go for the 5,000. So a lot of people from his town, they gathered money together to send him to Randall Island in New York, where he was going to run in the trials. Now, this happened to be during the 1936 North American heat wave. On the day that he ran that race, 40 people alone died in Manhattan from the heat wave. So when his race came up, people started going, and many of the people in the race collapsed. But he finished in a dead heat tie with Don Lash, who was the American record holder in the 5,000, which earned him a spot to go to the 1936 Olympics, representing the United States of America. And at that time, the Olympics, of course, was going to be held in Berlin, Germany. So he gets on a boat and he goes overseas. Now, while he's on this boat, he has access to all this food. He'd never seen so much food in his life, and he's just eating constantly. So by the time he gets over to Berlin, he's gained all this weight, and he's not in running shape anymore. And so he had no illusion of being able to place in this race. On the day of the 5,000, he actually ended up coming in eighth. He was way ahead of Don Lash, who came in 15th. And in fact, his last lap was so fast that Adolf Hitler asked for a personal meeting with him. He ended up shaking Hitler's hand and Hitler said, so you're the boy with the fast finish. And so as a result, Louis gained some celebrity and he returns back home to USC and he finishes out his time there. By the time he had graduated, he had achieved the collegiate record for the mile, which was four minutes 8.3 seconds, and that record would stand for 15 years before it would be broken. When he graduated from his, with his degree from USC, he ends up going and enlisting in 1941 in the United States Army Air Corps, where he's commissioned as a second lieutenant. He learns how to become a bombardier. He's working on the consolidated B-24s, and his crew, they're working on a plane that is dubbed Superman. And unfortunately, at one point, his Superman plane ends up getting bombarded and hit in firefights, and so they can't use the plane any longer. So he gets moved over with his crew to the Green Hornet B-24s, which were known at that time among pilots as being a defective lemon. At one point in 1943, in May of 1943, his team is in the Green Hornet flying over the Pacific. They are doing a reconnaissance mission to try to see if they can find survivors of a crash. And they had mechanical failure in the plane, which sent it down into the ocean. Eight of the 11 crew members died upon impact. Louie survived, along with the pilot, Russell Allen Phillips and along with another man, Francis McNamara. Now these men, they were able to inflate two different rafts, and these two rafts they were able to get into. Now they had no fresh water, but they did have rations because within those rafts, the United States government had packed ration D chocolate, which is chocolate that would not melt. So they had some food to get by for a period of time. Unfortunately, McNamara one night has a psychological break and he ends up eating all of their chocolate, which means that their likelihood of survival really plummeted. So at that point, they were having to live off of rainwater, off of little fish that would come by and sometimes birds that would land on top of their raft. 
But that would become the least of their problems, their lack of food and water. Eventually, they end up having to deal with bigger issues, like sharks that are trying to literally jump into their raft. They have to beat them away with oars. They have to deal with massive storms in the Pacific Ocean that threaten to capsize their rafts. And at one point, there is a Japanese bomber that comes by and decides to strafe at them two times. Now, none of them end up getting hit, but it does puncture a hole in one of their rafts. So at this point, they're floating along. When they're at 33 days at sea, unfortunately, McNamara passes away. They hold a little funeral for him, Louis and Russell, and they drop him into the ocean. They are able to survive again for another 14 days, and by their 47th day at sea, just when they think that all hope is lost, they end up floating into the Marshall Islands. Now, the Marshall Islands at this point in time, they are being held, or they're the territory of the Japanese. And so the Japanese find them there, they scoop them up, and they take them to a prison. And in this prison, they are there for six weeks until they are transferred to the Japanese mainland. And once they get to the mainland, Louis would find himself in three different interrogation centers and POW camps. It didn't take long, though, for the Japanese to realize that Louis was actually a bit of a celebrity because of his Olympian status. And it's because of this that it actually prevented him from being executed. It's also because of this that he became a target of his Japanese captors. So at one point, Louis is taken to the studios of Radio Tokyo, where he is asked to read a statement. And the statement was a propaganda piece that was put together by the Japanese government to make the United States government look incompetent. Louis looked it over, and he was willing to read the first part because he knew that his family had assumed that he had died in this plane crash. He wanted them to know that he was alive. So he reads the first part, but he's unwilling to cooperate any further. And at that point, he is taken to the POW camp. And during his time in the POW camp, Louis faces disease, starvation, exposure, and near daily beatings from the guards. And in fact, perhaps one of the hardest things he had to go through was the torture that he endured from Japanese Corporal Matsuhiro Watanabe. Now, Watanabe took a particular interest in torturing Louis. And this is because Louis was an Olympian. He felt he was a celebrity. And so he would beat Louis with belts and clubs in his fists. He would threaten to kill Louis mostly daily. At one point, he told Louis that he wanted him to hold a very heavy wooden beam above his head and that if he dropped it, he would shoot him. Now, Watanabe assumed that because Louis was so malnourished, he'd only be able to hold the beam up for maybe a minute or two. But Louis was indignant. He held this beam above his head for nearly 15 minutes, staring down Watanabe the entire time. And Watanabe became just irate. He came down and he ended up punching Louis in the stomach, rendering him unconscious. Another incident occurred where Watanabe told all the American POWs that he wanted them to punch Louis in the face as hard as they possibly could. And if they tried not to, and it wasn't to Watanabe's liking, he would ask them to do it again. It is actually amazing that Louis was able to survive all of the torture inflicted upon him by Watanabe. But as you might imagine, the psychological and emotional scars were much, much deeper than the physical scars. On August 15th, 
1945, along with all the other POWs who had been able to survive their time in the Japanese camps. Louis was liberated. He was eventually reunited with his family, but sadly, his running career was functionally over. He had injured his ankle during a work detail while he was a POW, which would prevent him from being able to run as fast as he had been running prior to the war. At one point, Louis decides in March of 1946 he's going to take the American government up on its offer to send the soldiers to one of four different resorts around the country where they could get two weeks of rest and relaxation. He decided he wanted to go to Miami Beach in Florida. So he goes down to Miami Beach, and it's there that he meets his future wife, Cynthia Applewhite. When he meets her, he immediately falls in love with her, and she was much years much much younger than he was, a few years younger, and so her parents were not really thrilled about her being with him, but they ended up getting married literally two months later. They got married on May 25th, 1946, and immediately all of the PTSD that Louis had been dealing with from his days in the camps, they came back on him. He had incessant nightmares where he imagined he was back in the camp. He would dream about flying back to Japan, finding Wantanabe, and murdering him. This was an obsession to him. He was thinking about it all the time. Although he told nobody about it, he thought about this constantly. And as a result of all this pain, he began drinking very, very heavily, which of course caused his marriage to descend into total conflict and arguing all the time. Within three years, Cynthia realized that she had made a mistake, and she determined that she was going to divorce Louis and move out with their young daughter. But before she could do that, she ended up hearing about this young preacher who was coming into town. His name was Billy Graham, and he was holding these tent revival meetings in Los Angeles. And so she decided she wanted to go hear one of these meetings. She wanted to see what it was like. So she goes to one of the tent revivals. She goes inside, and she hears it, and she's absolutely blown away by what she's hearing. And she goes home to Louie, and she says, Louie, this is what we've been missing from our lives. Please come hear this man speak. And Louie didn't want to. He didn't want anything to do with it. But eventually, she wore him down. He went in there. He listened. And the first time he went, he left early. He said, there's nothing here that's of relevance to me. Again, she implored him, please come back. I want you to hear what he has to say again. And so he eventually says, okay, I'll come back. But once we get to the prayer time, I'm out. So he gets there. He listens to Billy Graham preach, and he can tell the prayer is coming. And so he gets up, he grabs his wife by the hand, and he's walking out of the tent. And that's when he hears Billy say, what kind of life are you living? Are you satisfied with your life? And it's at this moment that he stops and he hears this. And everything that he had been dealing with in his life at that moment, all of the rage and anger, all the hopelessness and despair, it all came into focus at that point for him. And he saw the person who he was, and he decided he didn't want to be that kind of man anymore. And so he let go of his wife's hand, and he walked to the front of the tent. And there in front of Billy Graham, he did something absolutely remarkable. He let go. He let go of all of his hate. He let go of his desire for revenge, and he replaced that hate and revenge with forgiveness. He was willing to forgive Wantanabe and the other Japanese soldiers who had abused him. 
He never touched another drop of, drop of alcohol again in his life. He treated his wife and children with unconditional love, and the nightmare ceased. Now, when I began this sermon, I told you that if we are going to have true peace, we first have to extinguish the chaos from our lives. And the truth is that all of us, at some point in our lives, we deal with chaos. It comes our way, and we have no choice but to deal with the fact that there are walls, our world, they're crashing in around us, and many of us don't know how to cope with that type of pain. And so we are faced with a decision. Are we going to run away from that pain? Are we going to just say, I don't want to deal with that? Or are we going to turn and confront the chaos? And that's really what Palm Sunday is all about. Palm Sunday is a choice. Are you going to walk the hard road? Are you going to deal with the difficult things in your life? Or are you going to turn and run the other way? Because when you walk down that hard road, when you walk down the path of palms, what that means is, is that you are going to confront the chaos in your life and you're going to deal with it. And that's exactly what Jesus was willing to do on Palm Sunday. He walked down the path of palms and he was willing to confront all of the oppression that was driving his people into chaos. And because he was willing to do that with such courage, he opened the door to peace through love and forgiveness because what happened to him on Palm Sunday, what he did on Palm Sunday, it would set the stage for his eventual death and resurrection, which is what opens the door truly for us to find peace in our lives. Now, when we're talking about Louis Zamperini, this is a man who initially, when he was dealing with all the chaos of his life, he just ended up saying, I can't deal with it. I don't know what to do. And so he drowned out all of that chaos with alcohol. He, he numbed it out, which is what a lot of us will do in those types of situations. But then, when he heard Billy Graham speak, when he heard that question, how are you living your life? He decided to turn and walk in the other direction. He was willing to confront the chaos in his life, and he was willing to embrace forgiveness and love. And so, what I want to end with today is a question to you. And the question is, how are you living your life? Are you living a life of peace or are you living a life of chaos? And I know many people right now are saying, I'm living a life of chaos. The COVID-19 virus is just throwing our whole world into chaos. I can't do the things that I normally do. And I get that. And there's some of you who were in chaos prior to COVID-19. Some of you are dealing with things internally that are just tearing you apart. These are things from your past, or maybe you're dealing with the people in your life right now. The fact is, regardless of what's causing the chaos, if you feel it, then I feel you really do need to invest heavily in the spiritual discipline of peace. You need to be willing to try to walk down that path of palms. Because if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to confront the chaos in your life, I can tell you that you're going to end up exactly where Jesus and Louis ended up. You're going to end up in a place of forgiveness and love. And that is what we're going to explore as we walk through Holy Week with Jesus. As we go to Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about what it means to find that love and that forgiveness in our own lives. I hope to see you there. I hope you stay safe, stay inside, stay away from people. But I want you to know that we love you and we're thinking about you. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.